Vision and Sounds built to stimulate around the eyes. Greatest and greatest wellness trends, treatments, and experience. Work back Magnesium is naturally found in foods like. This is the Well and Good podcast. Tune in to find the wellness that fits your frequency. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. For Pride Month, Well and Good is joyfully celebrating the right to love out loud with a collection of stories from the LGBTQ plus community on site and here in your ears. I'm senior producer Taylor Camille, and on today's episode, we are passing the mic to the ever-talented Rachel Ricketts as she shares in conversation with Alok Badminton about what it means to love and be loved in every aspect of our lives and how self-acceptance can be the most profound form of romance there could ever be. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Ricketts. My pronouns are she, they. I'm currently based in Toronto, and I'm an author, alchemist, and creative justice consultant. Hey, everyone. I'm Alok. I use they, them. I'm based in New York City, and I'm an artist. Happy Pride Month, y'all, though every month is Pride Month in my mind, but I'm really excited to be here celebrating and having this discussion with you, Alok. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So let's dive right in. Many witches and spiritual guides have named 2022 the year of the lovers. And this is because 2022 in numerology is a six year. And the sixth major arcana in the tarot is the lovers archetype, which, and it may seem counterintuitive to folks for this year to be named the year of the lovers, given all the violence, the ongoing oppression, the collective and personal grief that we are enduring. What comes to mind for me is Rihanna's we found love in a hopeless place. The lover's archetype is really about the ways that we find love for our truest and most aligned self at all costs. It's about liberation. It's about freeing ourselves from the status quo, dismantling systems of harm, and envisioning new worlds beyond binaries. All of which to me is hella fucking queer. So we love that. So I'm curious what love means to you. We know this is going to be a great conversation when we're beginning with love. So thank you. Yeah. Rihanna is a sage prophet and we found love in a hopeless place. Actually, I think it's one of the most beautiful poems about the human experience that has ever been composed. And I find myself Mm -hmm. returning to it time and time again, because the truth is that The only way that I can continue going is by becoming bilingual 
both in what is horrific and devastating and in what is splendid and delightful. And that's new for me because I'm new to the world of delight. So it it's so easy for my brain and my trauma to make me just orient towards things that are falling apart. And that's actually the way that I got out of that is I realized that the reason that my brain was doing that was because it loved me, because it wanted to protect me. And it thought that me focusing on all these potential dangers would keep me safe. And so then I realized even in that, even in that, there's love there if I notice it. In so many ways, my anxiety and my depression are actually my neurological system's attempt to love me. It's misdirected and I can try to coax it back into a different place, but its intentions are actually quite pure that at a fundamental and cellular level, my body is trying to like make me okay, I think is really delightful. And so now what I'm trying to really do in my life is to understand that there's always kind of underground, an underbelly that is beneath the surface that actually is so often where love lives. And I, and, and I feel the need to say that because oftentimes the only narratives about love that we see are very public facing, super like PDA, like that's what love is. But I actually think love is often so invisible, often so felt and not seen, often so subtle. It's the way that you began this podcast, checking in with me to actually try to carve out a space in this world for intimate vulnerability that feels safe. What a loving thing to do. And yet that won't be in the official transcript. So often love isn't in the official transcript. And I think that reorientation to be like, what are all of the invisibilized acts of love that allow us to show up as ourselves? I know for me, in order to be here speaking to you now, so many people had to love me <laughs> and they loved me before I was even capable of loving myself. And so every word that I speak, every idea that I am co-creating is a testament to that love. And my life being alive is a testament mm. to that love. Mm. I resonate with all of that so much. Thank you so much for sharing. What that brings up for me is the trauma healing work that I'm doing is around embodiment and what it means to return to my body as a queer Black femme in a world that is constantly causing me harm. And like you say, the love that comes in the subtle ways, in the invisible ways, in the off Instagram ways, that seems to be the most potent. Like people talk about embodiment and being in our bodies and we talk about love, but what does it really feel like? What is the experience of embodiment? What is the experience of love? And I think those things go hand in hand, especially as people who are made most marginalized, what does it mean to be embodied in ourselves and to love ourselves in a world that's constantly causing us harm? I'd love for you to share how you use love to bolster yourself and, and potentially others through these consistently trying times. We know we are in trying, trying times individually and collectively. 
Yeah, I'm a very spiritual person. And central to my spirituality is that self-intimacy is actually the greatest romance in the world. Yes. I think so often we're taught that romance requires validation from the other. But I actually feel like internal self-acceptance is the most profound form of romance that there ever could be. And I got to a place in my healing where I was like, oops, I've outsourced what, I, what should be my internal work mm. to the world. <laughs> and I need other people to confer a kind of legitimacy and sense of safety that only I can give to myself. Mm-hmm. And that was really confronting for me in my healing journey. Cause I was like, wait, what do you mean? Like I had spent so long pointing and being like, you are not. And of course they're not, mm-hmm. but there's certain things that other people cannot give us. Yeah. And so then I started to spend a lot more of my time in the kind of quiet of my solitude, which was also, I think really accompanied with, the quarantine, which that might be experienced for a lot of listeners, where for the first time I had to really just sit with myself. I wasn't doing any public facing events. I wasn't performing and I was just kind of in the echo chamber of my mind. And I started to realize I don't like what I have here. And that was really hard for me to be honest about, which is that I'm really mean to myself. I'm very cruel. I'm constantly putting myself down. I'm constantly doubting my capacity. And so I just started to workshop my heart like I did political education for the world (laughs) to really do that due diligence to be like, okay, I'm going to call you on your bluff. You can't be out here saying that all these people that you represent are sacred and then not doing that to yourself. Like, "Eh." And I'm still, it's a work in progress for me. Like I'm still doing this work. But what I really started to realize is that when I have an internal sense of security, I am so not perturbed by other people operating at a lower frequency. So now I'm able to just sort of harness my intuition and be like, oh, okay, this person's operating from a lower frequency right now. I'm not even going to let, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I have an energetic barrier up and that's hard earned and, and taken me a long time and a lot of work to be able to decipher. This is not my own. Cause I think when you grow up as a marginalized person, you are, are tasked with taking on other people's projection as your reality. And to be able to say, no, actually I, I didn't sign up for this. I, I don't want to have to do this. It's taken me a long time coming because old me used to glorify and romanticize taking on other people's stuff that I believed in them more than they believed in themselves. I thought that as a virtue of me, like, look at me, I'm such an empathetic person, but empathy that requires self-immolation is an empathy because we have to extend that courtesy to ourselves in order to extend it to one another. Yes. Thank you. I just resonate so much with everything that you're sharing. What comes up for me now also is some of the work that I resonate so much with your healing journey and the just omnipresence and forever nature of this work, right? Of this learning and unlearning and relearning. And I think one of the most beautiful things about holding the identities that I have 
as oppressed as they are in the world that we live in is that it has forced me in many ways to come to terms with a deep sense of love and embodiment for myself. And a lot of people call this resilience. A lot of people call this strength. A lot of people call this courage. And it is all of those things. But I also want to be clear that I'm not glorifying that just because we are made most marginalized that like how great, because then I get to be strong and brave and resilient, right? Like the other side of the places that I've come to in my healing journey, which is work, is a result of a lot of harm and the ways in which I've chosen to work through that harm and to be able to find love again, in a hopeless, hopeless place. So I'm not glorifying that, but I am also naming that as much struggle as that comes with, as much suffering as that can bring, it has also been a gift because on the other side, which is a forever journey, it has allowed me to learn to love myself in a way that I think status quo, cis, straight, white, non-disabled, rich folks are not doing. I think it's a really delicate balance that you're striking here. And I appreciate it because I, I, I fall into the same dilemma often as I don't want to romanticize what we've had to go through. Like this idea of like pain teaches us. I'm like, well, some people learn without just like being in pain. Mm-hmm. That, that, and we can, we, we can learn with joy. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. We shouldn't have like struggled to have gotten this. And so I don't, I never want to like standardize that you have to be like, going through arduous experiences in order to like get insight. And alongside that, the the truth is it has allowed us to harness the kind of superpower to actually be able to understand the difference between living and existing. You know, I, I was on a panel a few months ago where someone said to me, I'm from Texas. And they said, you know, in Texas, the only way you can really live a good life is if you're a Christian, white, cis, straight man. And I said, hold on, I, I don't want to be a Christian, white, cis, straight man, and I don't actually <laughs> even think that they're living a good life. No. They don't get to define what a good life is. And I said, hey, even though I've been through a lot, I actually feel like I'm living a really damn good life. And I don't want to have to emulate their standards of what life is. I think when we're having this conversation about respectability and how often we have to act in ways that are white, look in ways that are cis, I want us to push that conversation to even live in ways that are our. It's not even just look, it's live, the way that they live their life, what they prioritize, how they structure their time, how they speak to themselves. Within our experiences is a portal to an alternative way of living that I don't want to give up on. And I think oftentimes the requirement, the prerequisite for legitimacy is to give up on the most sacred and incongruous forms of living that are full of dissent to a status quo that I'm not interested in being part of. Like an example of this is friendship. When we look at all the data right now, so many straight cis white men report that they have no one that they can talk to about their emotions and that they find it extremely difficult after the age of 30 to even have like one or two people they can call on the phone to talk about their issues. Why are we out here still pretending like that is the aspiration? (laughs) 
what my experience has allowed me to do is to create potentials and pathways for vulnerability, to create networks of care and support such that if I'm going through something, I actually have people who can relate to what I'm going through and show up for me in a material way. That ability to build intimate connections with one another, to establish vulnerability is a queer art form. And I speak to my mom about this all the time. I'm like, why are you so closed off from telling people what you're going through? And she's like, I just don't have any practice or prototypes on how to do that outside of the family I was born into. And I'm like, let's have this conversation. Heteronormativity has removed your capacity to thrive in this world. (laughs) And in fact, queerness has granted me that possibility to create the networks of support that are not only necessary in order to navigate this world, like queer friendship is necessary. It's not the icing on the cake. It's not gratuitous. It's like essential to live under these times. Yeah. Thank you for that. I feel absolutely similarly. And because all of this is so nuanced, I also want to name that a lot of us feel incredibly isolated <laughs> because of the, mm. the systems of harm that we live under. And I know I certainly would not be alive if not for the community that I have. And I also know that I still really struggle to find community that feels aligned, that feels supportive, that feels nourishing as my whole full self. And part of that is because of my own internal conditioning, right? So I've been so terrified, really, I mean, terror, not afraid, terror to show up as my fullest, most Mm. complete, most aligned self, because I've been conditioned from little to hide in order for connection Mm. and safety. And the Mm. bitch of it all is that I've been conditioned to essentially hide and to prioritize others for safety, for a false sense of safety, for like a white cis het patriarchal sense of safety that actually is in no way, shape, or form safe for me. If I don't get to show up as my fullest, most complete self with my wings completely open, totally black, totally queer, totally gender expansive, all, all of the things I am, including including the shitty parts of myself, including my shadow, like my fullest self, mm. if I don't get mm. to do that in relations with others, I'm actually not safe. And so I just want to name for those who are listening, who maybe don't feel like they have community because community is, is absolutely vital. I'm totally with you. It's absolutely vital for all of our existence, for all of our sense of health and well-being, especially queer folk, especially those who have been made most marginalized. And I think a lot of us struggle to find community, struggle with feelings of loneliness, struggle with feelings of abandonment, struggle with feeling, you know that song, Earth is Ghetto, I Wanna Leave? Earth is ghetto, I wanna leave. Can you beam me up? I'm out on the street by the <laughs> Feeling like this world isn't necessarily for us, which I actually take as a sign of health because if we feel sick and if we feel unwell in a sick world, right, it's actually a sign of health. But I'm wondering what you would say to the folks who are struggling with finding their people, with finding their community, especially like the queer folks right now. Yeah. All I can do is speak to my own experiences. And 
I had to go internal before I could go external. And that's hard to hear. It was really hard for me to hear that. When people tell that to me, I'd be like, what are you talking about? That, <laughs> that feels pop out. But I, I just resonate so deeply with what you're saying about how our childhood trauma shapes our ability to show up. Because for me, how that materialized is like an extreme fawning complex mm-hmm. where I really wanted to be likable because likability was conflated with safety for me as a child. Mm-hmm. And so I learned how to crack a joke or how to like be a good therapist for people or how to like process a situation or break it down. These were all skills that were about, hey, will you defend me if I'm experiencing physical Mm -hmm. harm? And so because I wasn't actually showing up in my highest aligned self, I wasn't magnetizing that in other people. And I was entering into relationship contracts where we made an unspoken agreement to lie. Yeah. And so then I would be like, why am I not building community? But it's also like, I'm not, I'm not showing up mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that work is so delicate of being like, it was sort of what we're speaking to before about compassion for the world begins with the compassion from inside. Mm-hmm. That interconnectivity of, if I'm not in community with myself, how am I going to be in community with other people? Mm. And so it, it's taken me, it's, it's like, I, I don't want to, once again, healing hurts. Yeah. It's extremely confronting. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and really like, I'm just sitting here, like, I thought I figured this stuff out. Like, mm-hmm. what do you mean that I still have to work through this stuff? Like it flares up, it's completely nonlinear. But what I am finding is that when I'm able now to in the moment be like, Hey, this is my trauma coping strategy right now. This isn't me. Mm. I'm now able to even know, hey, this is me contouring myself to fit into someone else's idea versus what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I can even register that. And then I make a choice. And then the choice now is I'm going to choose love over fear. I'm going to choose vulnerability and connection over isolation. Mm-hmm. And then what I found in my life is that when you are operating from that kind of frequency, of course you repel people who are not yes. and are not ready. Yes. But you also really magnetize people who are. Yes. And I mean, just to be meta, <laughs> I think that this conversation was our magnetism together, mm-hmm. right? Like you're showing up in yourself and your self-awareness and your self-respect put out into the universe. And I felt it. Mm. And, and I think it's important when we're doing this work of naming delight to name the outcomes that come from our healing work. It's a difficult and grueling process. And when you do it, there's amazing perks. Yes. <laughs> like, I, I see it now where it's like someone cancels plans with me on a Friday evening. Old me would have been like, oh my God, I need to call like 20 other people. I can't be alone. <laughs> No one loves me. This is horrible. New me is I'm kind of like, I think I'm going to take myself on a date. I'm going to do what I was going to do with someone else, but just with myself. And I really enjoy it. And that's so new. I literally just sat in a park the other weekend by myself Mm. for like five hours. And I like watched the sunset. I became the girl who like goes to the park and watches the sunset (laughs) 
And it was like revelatory. I was like, oh my God, this is so pretty. And then I was like, why don't I spend more time looking at sunsets? And then I was like, oh my God, the metronome of capitalism distracts me from actually being like, I should just spend the evening looking at a sunset because it fulfilled me. Because when I saw the sun shifting, I remembered that everything is ephemeral. Mm. And that gave me so much hope because I was like the pain and the grief that I'm feeling right now will not be permanent. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of that. I resonate with all of that so much and can say I'm in it where I'm at in my journey is a place of deep Phoenix rising. Like so much is burning to the ground, Mm -hmm. which again, to me is under the skies of the year of the lovers. Like what has to burn in order for us to rise from the ashes anew in our truest, again, most aligned self. And so if anyone's listening, who's also in that process of things falling away of grief of deep loss, just this reminder, as you so beautifully shared, that things come in cycles, that we are part of nature, that everything shifts and moves, Mm -hmm. including us, you know, every seven years, all of ourselves are entirely different. We are constantly changing and evolving and growing constantly. And so we get to choose how we do that. We get to choose sort of if in many ways, emotionally and spiritually. And I, again, don't mean this in a spiritual bypassing way of like, if things really suck right now, just hold on. It's all going to be fine. Like, I don't, I don't mean that. And some of us don't survive this. Let's be really clear. Right. A lot of us, a lot of us actually don't survive this experience on this planet at this time with the amount of harm that we are forced to endure. So I'm not bypassing any of that. There's been many moments I have almost not survived, but I can say when I'm in my darkest moment, when things are really falling the fuck apart, which they are for me at the moment, that they're also, I trust and believe for myself that they're also falling together. I trust and believe that it's actually a sign of progress because what is falling away Mm -hmm. is the shit that is not meant for me are the contracts that I entered into that no longer serve my, my most aligned good. And so when everything looks completely different, it's because I am doing the work to show up as my fullest self. And therefore, of course, everything is going to look and be different. So again, that, that nuance of not the hero's journey, really, but just if you are in a really dark space, to acknowledge that that can also actually just be a beautiful sign of progress. It can be a sign of love. For me, it is a sign of the ways in which I'm loving myself more and the ways in which I'm going to choose to show up in right relationship, which to me is also all about love. Mm. Mm -hmm. For me, I spent so much of my life dissociated Mm, and not even aware of what I was feeling. Me too. And so now when I'm feeling grief or sadness or anguish or torment, I'm like, I'm feeling it. Mm. That's new for me. Mm-hmm. And that's a testament to growth because I used to be going through things and I just wouldn't even register that I was going through them. Yeah, It was just my reality. Harm was my reality. Mm. And now I'm able to be aside and be like, oh, that was harmful and that hurts. And that's a, that's a testament to a kind of internal striving in me that says you're worth more than pain and that's new. And so often when I'm experiencing that kind of despair, I actually remind myself there is still a sense of gratitude that I'm able to feel it because that's new for me. Like, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what's wrong with the spiritual bypassing discourse is it, first of all, operates on the frequency of a pain-free reality. Mm. Like that we can move to a point where there's no more pain, yeah. no more suffering. Yeah. And I just think that that's disingenuous. 
I think it's important to remember that there's always going to be suffering because the people that we love and the people that we are die. Even if we were to end every system of oppression, the primordial reality of death is suffering inducing, you know, Mm -hmm. because we want people to be there forever Mm -hmm. and they're not. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's irresponsible to to project to people that there's going to be a world without suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think that instead what we must do is offer people pathways on how to relate to suffering, to create Mm -hmm. ritual and ceremony Mm -hmm. around suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's what is so malnourished under Western colonialism is no real grief ceremony. Because if there were to be grief ceremonies, then people would be sensitized Mm -hmm. to the mass fastest equations of mass death making that allow this system and this machinery to operate And then there would be an interruption of that because people would feel the devastation of this mass shooting at the school a few Mm. days ago, Mm -hmm. would feel the devastation of residential schools and the remains of Indigenous and First Nations people would really feel what that meant. And, And that's why for me, healing and feeling are the beginning and precursor of political activation. Absolutely. And... I really resonate in your approach to foregrounding healing because that's often missing from the conversation, which is that I could argue with you. I could present all the data, all the evidence, whatever. But if you're operating from Mm self-betrayal and if you're holding pain as like a virtue, like a a little star on you, nothing I'm going to say is going to land because you're going to be like, other people are suffering. I've suffered and it's okay. You have to be able to tell yourself, it's not okay that I suffer. Yeah. And then when you tell yourself that, you're open to the fact that it's not okay other people are suffering and we want to end it. And then I think the second thing that's wrong with the spiritual bypassing world is it really also, I think that it's a co-optation of a deep and ancient wisdom that's found in so many Black, mm. Indigenous, and racialized Yes. feelings without doing proper attribution of such. And mm. so I, I, I noticed that in my own healing journey, I stayed away from a lot of the mindfulness stuff and a mm. lot of the like healing stuff because I was like, this is just white. But then I started <laughs> to realize, yike, this actually is not. It actually has thousands of years of history elsewhere. It's just that I didn't have connection to that. Yeah. And so now when I'm like, really reading and learning about Buddhism, I'm learning about how actually in Buddhism, there's the idea that suffering is a visitor and that you can greet it and say, welcome, you're here to stay. But my fundamental constitution is oriented towards joy and joy is not the same thing as happiness. Mm. And so actually what healing for me is not being happy all the time. It's about being anchored in my joy such that I welcome grief, I welcome sadness, I welcome anguish, but I know that they are just visitors, Mm. not people who are here forever. And that idea of an anchoring in joy or an internal self-ethic, that's an ancient, ancient concept that I wish that we had had access to, but I think what our conversation is making us also feel is the quiet devastation of being dispossessed Mm. from traditions of healing such that we don't even have the tools to heal because they've been taken from us. 
Yeah, thank you so much for that. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There's so much I want to say. I think the first thing is just also when we're speaking of grief, for me anyway, the reminder that grief First of all, that death happens all the time, that death is not just about the end of a human life, that death is the way in which we choose to prioritize ourselves. That's a death because it's a death of the way I used to move or anyone else who's moving through. Like if you're in a healing journey, there's constant death, constant death and always rebirth. When there is death, there is life. When there is death, there is change. When there is death, there is new. And in all the grief work that I do and lead, it's also a reminder that grief comes not only from the things that that like white hetero capitalism tells us we should be grieving over, which is we don't even we're not even really allowed to, to tell ourselves that we're that we're allowed to grieve over death, right? It's like we're supposed to move on, but we also grieve all sorts of change and loss. So any form of an ending, whether it's like a friendship ending. Some of the hardest endings are relationships where the person didn't die, but they're no longer in your life for whatever reason. That person is still alive on the planet, but you are no longer in relationship with them. And we're just so ill-equipped to deal with loss and change across the board. But it also includes things like, like phenomenal things, like becoming a parent or being in a long-term commitment, like getting married or like starting a business, like the things that are joyful also come with grief because there's deep change. And maybe it didn't look like we thought it was going to look like, or it doesn't feel the way we thought it was going to feel. So just to honor that we, I believe, are actually in constant states of grief and yet so ill-equipped to understand what grief is because we're conditioned under cishet capitalism to be dissociated because that serves those who have the most power and privilege to the detriment of everybody else. And I totally agree and resonate with you that we really need to reacquaint ourselves, A, with our bodies and our experience. And I don't mean bodies in an ableist sense. I mean being in our hearts being in less in our mind and more in our spirit and honoring the full spectrum of our human experience, which is joy, which is different from happiness. Thank you for that differentiation. I love that, which is also our rage, our terror, our despair and creating spaces for us to move through that, which I think is just so fundamentally missing as you've alluded to. So thank you for that. I also wanted to touch on, if I may, I know that you recently lost your aunt. And so you're in a personal state of grief over the death of someone very near and dear to you. And I'm wondering if you feel comfortable sharing ways that you're moving through that very tangible, palpable grief right now. Yeah. It's been really remarkable because when you are dealing with death publicly, Mm -hmm. people flinch Mm -hmm. and some people don't. 
And then you really, it's like the line is drawn in the sand. And then you're really like, okay, who is really interested in being real with me? And that way, you know, my friend Ocean Vuong says, honesty is a vehicle for truth, but death is the only absolute truth. Mm. And it, it, it is such an absolute thing where to be able to speak about it with someone is so necessary, yeah. but very few people are willing to even speak about it. Yeah. We sugarcoat it. We, I heard about what's happened. We never name it. We never speak to it. We never announce it because to do so would puncture the illusion that so many people are operating from right now, mm. which is the immortality of all of our economic systems, <laughs> of all of our ecological systems. Yeah. And that's why people can't talk about climate violence, right? Yeah. Is that actually requires people to, to be honest that death is approximate. Yeah. And so in this moment of grief, I actually am just feeling such razor sharp intuition mm. of how everyone avoids yeah. <clears throat> confronting their own mortality and the mortality of the people around them and how that avoidance of pain, of that mm. true pain, manifests as ideologies. Mm. So in the in the US, where I'm speaking to you now, there is a mass radicalization of people recruited into conspiracy mm. who believe extremely far off, like highfalutin concepts and ideas that are leading to incredible violence. Yeah. Often people's approach to that is to say, how could they be so ignorant? Mm. I hate that. That, that, that dispossesses all of the incredible trauma-informed work that so many of us are doing that actually instead says mm. people will go through whatever lengths they can to not have to be with their pain. They will invent yeah. entire yeah. theories. Like, for example, right now you see the right wing trying to say that the shooter in Texas was trans. <laughs> That is such a great illustration of their inability to confront the violence of cis heteromasculinities mm-hmm. and the violence that is done to them. It is more heartbreaking to encounter the ways in which masculinity has harmed them than it is to outsource that to the production of this dangerous trope over there. So it's a trauma response. So in that way, in my moment of grief right now, I'm trying to really ask myself, how do I harness this as a lesson to remember that no one wants to feel what I'm feeling right now and why, and to always be comfortable with feeling what I'm feeling right now. Mm -hmm. And what that means in a world that's structured against grief ritual is to insist, I am going to be grieving for a long time. I am I am going to be in pain. It's, it's not going to actually get better. Yeah. There's nothing that can bring her back. I am going to bring it up when it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I am going to speak about death and it's going to make people flinch. I am going to be honest because that's what we need to do yeah. is not privatize our pain. Yeah. We have to be honest and destigmatize it and teach people. It's not the problem isn't experiencing pain and grief. The problem is that we have no public around grief and pain. Yeah, And so I'm going to create that public. So what I've been doing, I'm on tour right now is after every show, I just tell my audience, I say, Hey, I'm in a lot of pain right now. And it feels disingenuous to come on and entertain yeah. you yeah. and pretend like I'm not, yeah. I am. And I, I just want to say, 
people die and it fucking sucks and it's unfair and it's cruel and illness is genocide. We have depoliticized sickness so much, but there's a reason why certain people die and why certain people live. Absolutely. And there's a reason why we see autoimmune conditions and cancer in particular communities. And I need you to understand that the people that you love could die too. And what would it look like if we showed up differently with that in mind? And everyone is so shook by that because I'm doing mostly comedy right now. So they just spent an hour laughing (laughs) and like, ha 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 ha. And then I just bring it back into that. Yeah. And I, I started thinking like, why am I doing that? And I was like, that's because it's the only thing I want to do right now. The only thing I want to do is be honest. And I just can't be in encounters anymore where I can't. Yeah. And I, I wanna, I want us to have serious conversations about how the DSM in the United States, mm-hmm. our mental health stuff, is trying to pathologize people who are grieving too long. Yeah. They've just come up with a new diagnosis for someone who cannot move beyond their grief from something. And I'm literally like, like connect the dots, everyone. Oh they don't want you to feel this pain so yeah. that you can be recruited. Yeah into all of these systems that glorify mass death. Mm -hmm. So there's actually something very immediate and powerful about being able to sit with our pain in public and to not have to coax it into something palatable or good or this liberal refrain. Like it was so telling when some people would tell me, oh, I saw that you're suffering. The universe offers us these challenges so that we can get (laughs) out. Not that. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Sit with it. Yeah. Sit with it yeah. with me. Yeah. T- tell me about what it felt like for you yeah. when you lost someone that you loved and yeah. how angry you were at the world and how unjust this is. Feel that with me first before you give me, once again, spiritual bypassing, yeah. this narrative that like people don't die, they go else. I know all of that. <laughs> and it doesn't reduce the pain. Yeah. I just so align with everything that you're you're sharing. And I wrote about in my book, my experience of supporting my mother who was chronically ill for 20 years and supporting her death and helping her die actively and, and really knowing who, who has the capacity and willingness to show up for you in the wake of those moments. And for me, it was not, Mm. not many people circling back to our initial conversation around like who I was showing up as and the people that were in my life. Of course they weren't able or willing to show up for me in the ways that I need they didn't even really know who I was. And they actually had shown me repeatedly that they didn't have much capacity at all or desire Mm. or willingness to be with their pain, to be with the truth, to be with their feelings. And so it was an incredibly illuminating time for me. It was being able to understand where I was at and the work I needed to do and the mass harm that occurs in the world and the ways in which we are constantly trying to counter or avoid pain. When I see mass shootings, I see people in pain. I don't just mean, of course, the families who are um, suffering as a result, but I mean, people hold like people holding a gun, shooting other people. When you get to that point, you are in so much pain. And again, I'm not bypassing. I'm not saying, oh, poor him. And I'm not calling it a mental, some sort of neurodivergence. It's not. We're all in pain. It's what are we doing with it? And what outlets do we have? What resources? What community are we able to tap into or not? Or not? So thank you so much for sharing your experience. I so appreciate that you are bringing the fullness of yourself and your experience, even in your comedy shows. Cause to me, that's the most human, real, um, 
life way of getting through shit. It's like, yes, you're here to be with me in comedy, but just because I'm, I'm here entertaining you and cracking jokes doesn't mean I'm not human. Doesn't mean I'm not going through shit. It doesn't mean that we're not all going through shit right now. When I ask folks, I like to ask folks, how's your heart instead of how are you? Because I think we're so conditioned when I ask, how are you for people to just say, fine, we don't even check in. We don't even actually know how we are. So I love to ask the question, like, how is your heart? In this moment, I don't even mean today, because especially when we're in grief, the experience of grief in, in my own experiences, it changes from moment to moment. And I can feel joy and rage and relief and terror in one second, five minutes or throughout the course of the day. So just being present with ourselves, knowing actually where we're at and giving ourselves permission for that to be in flux and to change, because that is the human experience. And there's so much policing of what, what grief should look like. Yeah. Like I had someone come up to me and say, why are you still touring right now? Like you must be in so much pain. And I was just like, oh my goodness. Like you don't get to tell me how I show up with my love and my grief. Mm-hmm. In fact, for me, the way to honor my aunt mm-hmm. is to fight because that's what she wanted from me mm-hmm. and from us. Mm-hmm. And it's about actually honoring her life through the the work that I'm doing in the world. So that is my grief ritual. My mm. art is my grief ritual. Yeah. I, I, th- I just feel like so often people are outsourcing their internal work, which is a reoccurring theme in this conversation mm. into us such that we become just like kind of subplots and mm-hmm. characters and their meta narrative. And I, I think that's so horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Violent. Like Violent. it's, so messed up. Like I, I belong to me and I don't need to like help resuscitate some idea of grief that you have for yourself. Mm. And, and then when you name that dynamic to be like, Hey, I'm being made into a character into a, I, I'm being scripted into something I'm not getting compensated for. <laughs> People get so defensive. I'm not doing that to you, but the reason they get defensive is because that's, what's been done to them. Yeah. And that's what they've been told love is. Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of death, I, I really have been feeling Bell Hooks' presence because I feel like her work in so many ways is even more relevant than ever when, mm. when she teaches us that most people don't know love, they just know lovelessness, and that in order to experience love, we have to actually encounter our pain yeah. and say, I've never been loved because I thought that love and abuse could coexist and they can't. Mm. And knowing that they can't makes me implicate all the people who I thought loved me yeah. and that they didn't. It's just people are showing their lovelessness to us over and over again. Yes. White supremacy is showing its lovelessness yes. over and over again. Yes. Cisnormativity is showing its lovelessness over and over again. When I look at the 280 anti-trans legislations in this mm-hmm. country, predominantly which are targeting trans and non-binary young people. Mm-hmm. I see this as so many cis people showing the lovelessness that they experience yes, as young people. Absolutely. The crisis is not actually about trans people. No. It's about their childhood trauma, yes. the ways in which they weren't allowed to express themselves, own their own bodies, self-author, be complex, be queer. And so because they experienced the coercion into gender norms as a kid and were told that that was love, Mm. they think that it's a loving act to deny other people bodily autonomy. So I don't, when I'm having those conversations, I don't even indulge the fake news, like political points around like, well, you know, biologically, I'm not even indulging that. Let's actually pivot away from talking about one of the most vulnerable groups in this country towards talking about your ass and how you 
have so much unprocessed trauma. Yes. That's what this is about. There's yes. no transgender issues. Yes. There are issues that you have. You want to talk about our dysphoria? What do we call the dysphoria of having to pass 280 pieces of legislation in order to reconfirm your idea of gender? Mm-hmm. That shows that you are not comfortable with your idea of gender either, babe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I feel like so much of what we've been talking about, what you've been sharing in your experience is what I call under the guise of spiritual activism. It's this piece of like, we need to be able to understand and look at our own shit before we can go out in the world and do the thing that we think is going to be of supportive to others. Because if we haven't done that work, we're actually causing more harm. And I think that that's the problem with where we're at um, and why things continue to not shift in the ways that they need to is because it's this inner work that needs to happen first and it's not happening because it's the hardest fucking work any of us can do. So I, I also understand why people aren't doing it, but I'm urging all of us to really do it because it's really, it's really urgent. But my last question for you, Alok, is in the midst of all this grief and tragedy, how are you finding or returning to softness for yourself? Hmm. Yeah, you know, the truth is grief often makes people brittle mm. because they're like, it's a self-protective impulse once again. Like, I don't want to have to feel this again. It's too hard. Mm-hmm. And so then people numb themselves and develop armor I refuse to do that Mm. because I've seen what that can do to a human being yeah I did that as a young person and I was just missing an action Mm -hmm. for my own life Mm -hmm. for so long and I know how easy and tempting dissociation is yeah but I refuse it yeah and so I've developed rituals now to re-enter my softness, my pain, my vulnerability, my fleshiness, my queerness, mm. my celestial soul. Mm. And that's my art practice. Yeah. My art practice always returns me to the fiction of armor and shows me that my true strength comes from my ability to tell the truth mm. and that truth is painful and emotional. Mm. And I'm so lucky that I've been able to create a life structure around my art. Mm. It's weird because when I'm performing, People often think that I'm doing this for an audience, but ultimately I'm just kind of, it's both and. Yeah. Yeah. But I just feel like it's a a cleansing ritual for me to be able to go in front of people and say, this is what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. This is me. Mm -hmm. And and I think I especially am feeling this in my current work because for a long time I closeted the comedic elements because I was like, there's urgency. I have to teach people about mm. transmisogyny. Mm. I have to activate people. And I didn't include my own joy and my own humor. Yeah. The way that I survive this world is through making jokes. And yeah. that's always been the case. And I never allow that to be part of my public persona because I didn't want to undermine my like legitimacy or the severity mm. of the crisis. And, and my I literally oscillate between levity and gravity. I braid grief and gratitude. And it feels so honest to how I navigate the world. And so being able to show up as my full self in my art, because I think the way it's worked in my life is I, I showed up for my full self on stage before I could start doing that in person. Mm. Like the stage allowed me to get mm-hmm. a glimpse of mm. what it would look like. What if I was that person who was bold and unapologetic? Mm. And then now I'm working backwards to bring that <laughs> energy from the stage into every. In- uh-huh. So I actually feel like I'm lucky in that when I'm on stage, I'm reminded this is me. This is my highest self. I feel so powerful. I feel beautiful. I feel connected. Then the most difficult work is the pivot back. When you go back to your hotel room alone and you're like, oops, (laughs) I have to confront the fact 
that I have to like take a shower and take off my lashes and like look at my life and not be under a spotlight. How can I bring that same level of love and commitment Mm. into me? And I think that's the work I'm doing right now is I know where I want to be and I'm not there yet. And where I want to be is that I have that sense of richness, that sense of presence that I have on stage in every encounter. Mm. I love that. And I want to hold that and affirm that, that vision for you. And I align with that as well. Thank you so much. I thought you were going to say your art, but I was hoping that, that you did. That was the, the, what came up for me and is also my truth. Like writing has saved my life and continues to save my life. I write books for myself first and foremost, as a form of catharsis, as a form of healing. And I still resonate with what you shared about. I feel like I can write things because the writing is the process and the undoing for me. And then, and then when I look back on it, I can really get real about the ways in which I need to embody that even more for myself and then continue um, on with that. I just want to say I'm really proud of it. I don't know you personally, but I just want to say I'm really proud of the ways that we are committed to the work that so many people in the world don't want to don't want to do because of how hard. And I also want to honor what it is that we uh, were forced to endure in order to move us into those spaces. And I want to hold that not just for us on this in this conversation, but everyone who's listening for all of the trans, queer, gender expansive folks who also are being forced to endure such a massive amount of harm and violence continuously that I'm just proud of us all for being here, really. Yeah, I want to echo that too. I I feel so much gratitude for your intentionality, for your wisdom. It it feels very ancestral and it feels very grounding. Mm -hmm. And what a delightful way to begin the circus that is Pride. Thank you so much, Alok. Before we close, how can people support you? Mm, come to my shows. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see you there. Yes. And can you share where people can find you? Instagram is probably the best. It's at A-L-O-K-V-M-E-N-O-N. Beautiful. And people can support me by buying my book, Do Better, Spiritual Activism for Fighting and Healing from White Supremacy. And you can find me on Instagram at... I-A-M-R-A-C-H-E-L-R-I-C-K-E-T-T-S. What an absolute pleasure, Alok. Thank you so much. I just really honor you, not for what you do, but for who you are. Thank you. On today's show, you heard from Rachel Ricketts in conversation with Alok Badminton. This episode was produced by Ella Dove, Abby Stone, and myself, Taylor Camille, along with many other hands and brains at Well & Good. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. Mixing and scoring by our sound engineer, Joanna Samuel, and our theme music was created by Madeline Lakomsky and Matt DiDomenico. Our show art was designed by Jenna Gibson and Karina Masonette.